everybody, this is Peter Diamandis. Welcome back to Exponential Wisdom. I'm here with my coach, my dear friend, Dan Sullivan. Dan, a pleasure. And today, you know, you and I have been talking about the extraordinary transformation that's occurring in, or the potential for the transformation that's occurring in the field of transportation. And we'll talk about how transportation is going to be changing our lives and the technologies coming into play here. And I'll, I'll rattle them off and then we can decide where to go. So we've got electric autonomous cars coming at us lightning fast. That's the first. We've got Hyperloop coming. Richard Branson just invested and we're now rebranding it Virgin Hyperloop One. We've got flying cars coming at us. Airbus, Uber, Larry Page, a whole slew of you know vertical takeoff, vertical ending flying cars. We've got two recent announcements by Elon Musk in the transportation space. Number one, is with his boring company. He's building underground tunnels to connect places like New York and DC, where you can travel at straight line at 200 miles an hour, no stop signs, no red lights. And then even the crazy idea that I love being a space cadet of point-to-point travel, hop in a rocket, launch from New York, land in Sydney, Australia 30 minutes later. So mm-hmm. a lot of transformation in the concept of transportation. So what do you think about that, Dan? Well, let's go back. I'm the guy who always goes back. (laughs) So if you take a look at the introduction of the car, you know, early 20th century, and then when a little later people actually flying, where do you think, if you had to compare these latest developments, where we are in relationship to a historical development, how would you see Let's take the autonomous electric cars. Where are we if you go back to when people were just getting used to the move over from horses to automobiles? Where do you think we are right now if you were judging on the growth curve? So interestingly, as you know, at Abundance 360 last year, I had brought Jeff Holden on who runs autonomous cars. He's the chief product officer at Uber. And I did some research to compare autonomous cars to horse and buggy. And the research showed you had the first cars coming into existence in the late, late 1800s at the turn of the century. And then the Model T, the first mass production car, came into existence in 1908. By 1912, four years later, half the horse and buggies were gone. By 1917, they were all gone. So four years to a midpoint switchover, and then another four years, they had disappeared. I think we're just at like the 1908, we're just seeing the Ford Model T, we're seeing these car companies, these autonomous electric car companies coming online, and we'll start to see the first ones really hitting the streets and that we can go and get into in late 2018, 2019, and then hardcore in the early 2020s. Well, you've had the actual experience because you were an early Tesla owner I think for the benefit of people who haven't had the experience of the car driving itself, what was your get used to this phase of you actually kind of, it's an interesting thing, and I know you're you're always up for a new experience, but what was your growth stage where this became a comfortable idea for yourself, and of course, we'd want to do this in the future? Well, I guess my first experiences in autonomous cars were actually at Google. I got a chance to ride in Google's autonomous Prius early on. You know, Larry Page was a huge fan of this field and started investing heavily. He brought Sebastian Thrun, who ran the Stanford Stanley team that won the DARPA Grand Challenge. 
it was amazing to see these cars doing what they've done. And, you know, I have a Model S and a Model X car. I know you have a Model X Tesla. I love the vehicles. They have just very basic autonomy right now. Some autonomous steering and driving, but they don't see red lights or stop signs yet. But my experience of it has been reasonably good. The cars only tried to kill me a few times. <laughs> I know there's that one curve on the way to LAX uh, you <laughs> approach with trepidation. I mean, you'd let the car drive, but not around that curve. I know. It's just what most people don't realize is that when you own an autonomous car or you're using an autonomous car in its full blossomed existence, it isn't your car like when you buy it it gets better every day mm-hmm. and it gets better every day not only because you're training it as it's driving with you but a million autonomous cars are all uploading their learnings every minute of the day so that one car that encounters icy gravel in North Dakota and it learns from that experience transmits all of its learnings to the rest of the robot operating system so to speak so every car gets better So I think it's just going to be, in the early days, there'll be some trepidation, but I don't know about you, but I haven't had any troubles getting into an autonomous elevator and worried that it's going to not stop or it's going to do something dangerous to me. Yeah, well, I actually have the benefit of going through the, you know, in the 1950s, I went through that transformation. We live close enough to a big city that we would start going in buildings which For as long as there had been elevators, there was an elevator operator. And, you know, the department stores were famous because they would call off what was on each floor. And I remember, you know, I was maybe eight years old when I went on the first automatic elevator. It was in a big department store. I found it fascinating, but my mother and my father were very reluctant to do that, you know. I mean, (laughs) in the early days, they did have mishaps of people getting caught between floors and everything like that, and then they had to work out the whole protocol of what you did. So is it sort of similar to that? Except the elevators in those days weren't reporting back to a central algorithm. So I think that the big thing here is the AI, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be the AI and how it's continuously learning. And the other part of it is the sensors, the ability of the car to be sensing tire pressure, road conditions, humidity, slippage, the amount of data. So when people talk about, oh, this car can't possibly, my reaction is, as a human, you can't possibly. I mean, when I'm driving, when you say I have a feel for the road, right, that feel for the road, if you're an amazing race car driver, is one thing. But for most people, it's quite another. I guarantee you an autonomous car with sensors that are picking up a thousand times more precise data and quantity of data and then analyzing that data is going to be far safer. One of the things I think about is what are going to be the implications of electric autonomous cars on the industries? And if you don't mind, I'll rattle a few that that I think about and ask you for. Let's add on. So first of all, I keep on saying electric autonomous cars because I think it's not going to be internal combustion in autonomous cars. It's going to be electric drivetrains. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, a lot of car companies like Volvo have announced no more internal combustion cars. We're only can produce electrics. And then you have countries like the Netherlands, even China, announcing we're going to make a requirement that all new cars sold need to be electric cars. So we're seeing this real push to switch over. Mm-hmm. So. 
electric autonomous cars are going to likely be five to ten times cheaper than owning a car mm-hmm. in terms of car as a service. So you never buy the car. You actually use the car only when you need it. And the rest of the time that cars in the fleets out there are going and generating revenue for their fleet owners. And so the realization for me is you don't need car insurance if you don't own a car. You don't have to fuel a car. You don't need a driveway at your home. You don't need a garage in your home. You don't have to worry about spending time trying to park your car or find a parking space. Cities don't have parking ticket revenue or speeding ticket revenues. Or parking revenues, really, actually. Or parking revenues. Yeah, people own parking lots. You know, these autonomous cars don't park. They go and do something useful. Where do they go? I mean, sometime during probably a 24-hour period, they're going back somewhere, aren't they? They're going to go charge. They're going to charge. They're going to go and charge themselves up. So you're going to have to create charging stations for these cars, and they will go. And interesting, right? These cars will probably be talking to a network and saying, okay, who's selling power cheaper? Because I'll drive the extra mile to go and buy power from that supercharging station versus this one because the price is is cheaper. And they'll be charging a lot at night when the usage is down off of batteries that were stored up by solar power. Interesting things, right? There's less plastic surgery because people are not getting injured from <laughs> from car crashes. Well, the whole insurance market is different. Oh, yeah. Car insurance is going to tank. It'll be some fleet insurance, but these cars aren't going to crash. Mm-hmm. Here's an interesting angle. I've heard that car companies make most of their money after you buy the car in maintenance and parts, right? They sell a car basically baseline, but electric cars have far fewer parts and have less maintenance requirements. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see a, a die-off of a large number of car companies. Mm-hmm. I think they're goners. What's your sense about that? Because the car industry is one of the most developed industries on the planet. Who are the forward thinkers that you've talked to in the car industry who are actively buying into the prediction that you're making And how are they approaching it? And I'm talking specifics here of people that you've talked to in the car industry who are full bore into the transformation. I've spoken to a lot of the leaders, put it this way, 10 years ago, 2006, 2007 timeframe is when the DARPA Grand Challenge was won. And this was the first autonomous car. The Stanley team out of Stanford won it. And this was a race in the Las Vegas desert. The car companies basically, Audi got a little bit involved. Most car companies ignored it. And Larry Page deserves a lot of the credit because he invested very heavily. And now Waymo is a spin out from Alphabet in that area. But the car companies for most of the last four or five years wholesale ignored this as no, 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 no. And now they have seen the writing on the wall. And a lot of them have said, we're not a car company. We don't sell cars we're now a mobility company. We're selling car as a service. Mm-hmm. But I think it's too late for most of them. I think it's going to be hard pressed for them to catch up. So, you know, if you think about what happens if, I don't know, pick whatever brand you want, Chevy, Cadillac, Audi, Volvo, what happens if their car sales drop 20%? Can they survive as a company? Mm-hmm. Because you've got new players like Google and Apple and Tesla and others coming in, they're going to be competing very heavily. A lot of partnering going on. Mm -hmm. There'll be a lot of shakeout. I guarantee you that. Yeah. 
Well, one of my experiences, Peter, is that, you know, it's like plan A and plan B. Plan A is the one they're talking about, and they're talking with, in terms that are well known by the public, but plan B is the one that they're actually preparing for. True. If you're a corporate CEO or that, you got to be careful with how you talk about things because you can tank your stock right now. So they still have to develop dealerships in the short range. They have this year's marketing campaign for the models that they've produced and everything else. So I have a feeling that there's the public message that's being set out, but there's a subterranean message that's actually at work here. So I'm always interested in how these things get talked about when they come out, because I always got a feeling with the smartest people, I mean, smart people are smart people. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, there's the general discussion, and then there's the specific, how are we preparing for the future? So I'm just wondering if you're seeing signs of this. Not Yet, I think I'm seeing a lot of car companies scrambling to figure out what piece of the future transportation pie, because it doesn't even end there, right? So 10% of millennials today are not buying a car as compared Mm -hmm. to before. As compared to the previous generation. They're Ubering, because it's just easier, and UberX is cheap enough that it's cheaper than buying a car. And that trade never existed before. See, I'm a good person to talk to here because I haven't driven for 15 years. Yeah, yeah, I know. You're ahead of the time. (laughs) I'm ahead of time, but I use humans to drive me, and I don't see it as too big a transition to move from being driven around by humans to being driven around by the car itself. Because I've just gotten used to being in the back seat and doing other things while I'm having the experience of driving. Yeah, I mean, the idea of wasting hours a day it's 200 a year for me, car involved, that I bought back by not driving. Yeah, I do that trade a lot, and I hate driving, and I will just get into an Uber wherever I can and just work in the back of the car. Airplanes and Ubers are where I get a lot of great writing done in the back of a car. Yeah. So here's an interesting idea, Dan. Where you were born used to impact what you had as optionality. Where you were born determined who you knew, what skills you could get, so much about your life. But as transportation becomes more and more agile, faster and cheaper, it's going to change that. So let me throw out a few more numbers. We talked about electric autonomous Ubers as being cheaper and car as a service. Now, if you're an electric autonomous Uber, it's okay to drive for an hour to and from work in the back of a chauffeured car because you get work done. But we're also seeing this emergence of two other important transportation classes. Hyperloop, I'm a founding board member of Hyperloop One here. We're building these large tubes that you pull the air out. These are evacuated tubes with no friction and a magnetic drive system that propels a human capsule down the track at 1,200 kilometers per hour. This is going faster than a jet plane. So you could imagine going from... 700 San- miles an hour for those who yeah. are still in... Doing the conversions yeah. here. We're demonstrating this right now. We're now called Virgin Hyperloop One. We have a test track in the middle of the Nevada desert. You know, LA to San Francisco right now is an expensive two-hour, three-hour experience from downtown LA to downtown San Francisco with cars and TSA at the airport and then an hour airplane flight. 
With Hyperloop, it'll be a fraction of that. It'll be a 40-minute experience, probably on the order of at least 10 times cheaper. Or LA to Las Vegas or New York to DC, you'll set up all these. It's the next iteration generation of the railway system that's coming online. And then the other thing that's coming online right now is these vertical takeoff, vertical landing vehicles. Everyone used to say, hey, where's my flying car from the Jetsons? Well, it's finally getting here. There's at least a dozen companies investing at this point, totaling in billions in these flying cars, these two, typically two passenger, you hop in, it takes off and it'll fly at you know 200 miles an hour. I'm mixing this up, you know, call it 350 kilometers per hour, point to point. Mm-hmm. So again, where you live and where you work is going to start to become disconnected. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts there? I have a number of experiences. I grew up on a farm in northern Ohio, and I remember when they put in the Ohio Turnpike. And the first experience of actually driving on the, you know, it was a pay for, still is. We used to, if we went to Cleveland, you'd have to take this route and this route, and you'd have to go through this town probably about three or four other towns before you got to Cleveland. And then when the turnpike went in, you drove three miles to the interchange you got on the turnpike, and then the next thing you got off, you were downtown Cleveland, Mm -hmm. you know, or very close to downtown Cleveland. So I have a similar experience. I mean, you mentioned the automatic elevator before. So what I look for is building block experiences that people have. Well, it's kind of like this, and you've already had this experience. And after a while, there's a number of these kind of like experiences that people have, and then they, they're very, very open to the total experience. But just regarding your desert experiment, when will it be that people can actually get in the test and have the experience of not going 500 miles, but going you know, a certain amount of distance in this? Is that in the near future? Yeah, I mean, it will be. I I think probably it's a year out. The first uses of Hyperloop will be cargo. Mm -hmm. We're in negotiations right now in the Emirates, parts of China, parts of Northern Europe, where you'll be using this transportation system for cargo. Eventually, people is next. You know, I was just meeting with a friend of mine who's Russian, and they build cities in Russia. Around a lot of cities are these rings. Mm -hmm. The cities are formed in rings. And as the transportation gets faster and better, another ring is built, another ring is built. So these rings are like, you know, the rings of a tree, but these are the rings of transportation speeds. Mm-hmm. So around Moscow, they're looking to build their fourth or fifth ring. But with current car transportation, it takes two hours to get downtown Moscow and two hours to get back. That's just unsustainable. So in order to continue to move out from the city center, there's going to need to be better transportation systems like Hyperloop or like flying cars. And then once you do that, you know, one of the questions is, will the inner cities begin to die from too much density? Will people do less there? But I think about transportation systems shaping mm-hmm. cities, shaping where people live, what they do. Well, they already do. Uh, there's a very interesting study in the United States, and it divides American cities into two types of cities. There's train cities and car cities. Mm. So I've mostly grown up in train cities, like Cleveland was a train city. It had a terminal, you know, and the density was around the terminal. Phoenix would be a car city. L.A., car city. Yeah. (laughs) You didn't see who killed Roger Rabbit. It was meant to be a train city, you know. 
the whole thing. They had streetcar systems and everything else. And General Motors bought out all the trolley lines, and then they started cutting back on the service to people stopped using the trolleys. Yeah, I mean, the whole plot of who killed Roger Rabbit, this is a historical thing. But what about not working at a distance from your home? This is a big thing. I got the feeling the way you were talking about it, it's going to reconfigure where we do our work. I'm involved now with a slew of companies that I'm very proud of, and most of them have been traditional organizational structures with a central office and everybody works here. My team, PhD Ventures, that runs Abundance 360 and Abundance Digital, Marissa and Greg and Kelly and AJ and Bree and Sydney, it's more of a distributed holacracy. Everybody works remotely from their home. We get together once a month. They're working on Slack. We're on FaceTime or Mm -hmm. video chats. And, you know, people get together like you and I are together right now on a Zoom meeting recording this. And I'd love to reach over and give you a hug, Mm -hmm. but we can really see each other now and speak to each other. So I think there's going to be more of that. And it really is a matter of when the experience of being in a video experience together becomes richer. And I was having a meeting with someone yesterday and I felt this sense of real connection looking to their eyes and and feeling them. And I was saying, you know, as much as the travel to go and meet somebody is hard and I Mm -hmm. really travel way too much, the experience of being with a person face-to-face is still much richer and much more connective. So my, my biggest question is, when will we get to a virtual experience, which is not 80 or 90%, but 150%? Mm-hmm. In other words, that it's better. I'd rather meet with you in a virtual experience than in a face-to-face, because in the virtual world, I have so much more information about you. I'm getting so much more richer data that I feel better connected to you. I feel more intelligent. Mm-hmm. I feel more... So that's the question of, is that ever going to happen? Just before I came on the call with you, I was doing a conference call with someone who was in Prince Edward Island, which is about 1,200 miles from uh, Toronto. And we do all of our work on Zoom. So he's a cartoonist. I come out with a book every quarter. And one of the components of the book are cartoons, which give another context to the actual text. He actually draws the cartoons right on the screen And we're sitting there and we're going back and forth. We can see the text and we can look at the cartoons. And it's been the best working experience of my life that I've ever had working with an artist. A lot of Mm -hmm. coach stuff has a big visual component. I just find that it's cut the amount of teamwork time by, it's about 20% of what it was the quarter before we started working with Zoom. Zoom is the great breakthrough for me. I mean, of all the visual video conferencing and everything, I found, like, I'm looking at you, and you're almost there. I could almost feel that we could reach over and touch. And my feeling is that probably what moves people for greater and greater actual presence is going to keep improving. Ten years from now, probably we'll be looking back at Zoom and we'll say, it didn't really have the feel that we're having right now. So if you combine this, I mean, we're combining a couple ideas here. You're combining, if you can remove the distance with visual technology, people won't have the need to actually travel. So that's going to be one component to it. 
But the actual, I think what you're getting at is the actual hassle and the danger and the cost of travel that people are going to want to gradually get rid of. And we do. Skype and FaceTime have really reconnected families over long distances and so forth better than ever before. And so we're going to continually dematerialize and demonetize things. And so electric autonomous cars will demonetize and democratize access to transportation. But then how do you demonetize and dematerialize the car? It's going to be the virtual experience like this. Yeah. Eventually, the end point here is going to be when I have brain-computer interface and I can just simulate the signals of being in the same room with you exactly. And my brain feels like I'm there with you. I see a 360 image rich. I can squeeze you, shake your hand. So in that world, our meat bodies can be one place and our consciousness can be someplace else. And we'll talk about, we're going to be launching an Avatar XPRIZE funded by All Nippon Airways, ANA, very soon. And that will be a fun one. We'll talk about that some other time, but where I basically put on my VR goggles, my haptic suit, and I Uber my consciousness into a robot in Toronto. And I'm sitting in the back of coach but I'm sitting there occupying the body of a robot, not my actual physical body. But I can still walk around, shake hands, talk to people, and so forth. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting dematerialization and demonetization of transportation coming. And it's going to change every aspect of our lives. Yeah. You know what I like about the collection of different technologies that you're talking about? My experience is that people will never go for one new thing, they'll put it in context with a lot of new things at the same time. It's kind of a network of new things. And then that kind of normalizes their brain. If I'm just betting on one breakthrough, it's really risky. But if a lot of breakthroughs are integrating with each other, and I'm getting used to all these breakthroughs, then there comes a point where it just becomes generally acceptable to move into the new thing. Yep. So... For me, I think about this a lot for our friends and listeners. Think about how this is going to change if you're in the insurance business. If you own parking lots or parking garages, it's going to change your game. One of the interesting things, people who own apartment buildings, and you you have a requirement to build out a certain number of parking spots for each tenant you have there, but those are going to be wasted space. Mm -hmm. I just bought a new place and we are going to convert one of the parking garages into a bedroom. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think a lot of parking garages are going to be turned into spare bedrooms, Yeah, interestingly enough. Gyms, because people are going to be wanting to live longer, so maybe you can put a full-scale gym. I mean, we have a whole huge room in our house that's devoted just to gym equipment and everything like that. That would be far, far more a requirement for us than an extra garage for a car. Yeah, agreed. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be a fun subject for our next podcast. Maybe take a look at uh, human longevity and extending the healthy lifespan once again. I think it's a subject that most people should want to be caring about and tracking. Yeah. All right, pal. Learn a lot. When I have a podcast with you and you bring up all these topics, right away my internet searches become very, very different because your eyes only see and your ears only hear what your brain is looking for. And 
I find every time I've spent a couple hours with you, my brain just got rewired to look for new uh -huh. things and listen for great things. So this is generally true of all of the people who listen to the podcast. Well, thank you and, and a pleasure, Dan. All right, see you soon. And let's talk about one of my favorite subjects, living healthier, living longer. Thank you, Peter. Take care, Dan.